postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed. So I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. Hey, Adriana here. 
I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening. Welcome to Birthful Mighty Parent or Parent-to-Be. I'm Adriana Lozada. And as we get ready to wrap up our Care Provider series, I wanted to give you an insight into the work of maternal fetal medicine physicians who are the type of care providers that deal with the most complicated perinatal cases. So for that reason, you wouldn't necessarily pick them off the bat to be your care provider unless you or your baby are at high risk for significant complications although that is certainly a possibility. Now, regardless, I think it's a good idea for you to know what they do and how they practice in case you have to have a consult with them. And if that is the case, my hope is that this episode will make it less daunting for you. Okay, so my guest for this is Dr. Lorelai Thornburg, who is board certified in both general obstetrics gynecology and in maternal fetal medicine. And she's also a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, so ACOG. Dr. Thornburg, along with all that, is also an associate professor and director of the maternal fetal medicine division at the University of Rochester Medical Center. So yes, she's in my neck of the woods. And there she supervises residents and fellows, teaches medical students, and cares for higher risk OBGYN patients. One of the things that really stood out to me from our conversation is that what is considered higher risk has so much to do with the risk tolerance of the provider, their experiences, and what resources are available to them as they take care of their patients. And this is an idea that was echoed by other medical providers we've had in this series. So what that means then is that your ideal provider is going to be the one that is well-versed in providing the type of care you want or need for your particular circumstances and chosen place of birth. In other words, if you're going to have a breech delivery, you want someone who is well-versed in breech deliveries. If you're having a home birth, you want someone well-versed in home birth. And if you or your baby develop considerable complications, then you want someone who is well-versed in those complications. These differences in risk tolerance and comfort may also be why one provider may give you one recommendation while another one tells you something completely different or a little different, even if they're in the same practice. Now, of course, another key element to consider is your own risk tolerance, since you need to feel safe and comfortable giving birth wherever and with whomever you choose. And if you've already had some birth experiences, you might find then that your risk tolerance has changed and maybe you feel more comfortable hanging out at home for longer during early labor, for example, because that's not so much of an unknown anymore. I also got the sense that as we venture into more complicated cases, the care and approach become intensely customized to the particular needs of the pregnant person and baby dyad. And likewise, it becomes more difficult to find the right answer because truthfully, there isn't one right answer. This is probably why Dr. Thornburg and her colleagues have such involved discussions around the care they provide to their patients, and why it's also so important that true collaborative care be in place between you and all your care providers so that your thoughts and choices are also part of the conversation. 
So if you happen to be working with a maternal fetal medicine physician, you can still keep your BRAIN acronym handy, which I'll remind you stands for benefits, risks, alternatives, information or intuition for the I, and nothing or next for the N, and then use it every time there is a change in your situation and you need to evaluate or even reevaluate the next step in your care so that you can be a part of the shared decision making as well as understand alternative plans and options. You're listening to Birthful, here to inform your intuition. Lorelai, welcome. Thanks for having me. So happy you're here. So before we start, I have a super mundane question to ask you. Can you explain the difference between a resident and a fellow? Sure. We get this a lot. And in fact, I'll back up one step further. So a medical student is somebody who's in school to learn to be a doctor. A resident is actually somebody who's a fully credentialed physician, has an MD, but now is doing additional training. And that training can range anywhere from two years to three years to seven or eight years in a particular specialty. So three years of pediatrics, four years of OBGYN, seven years of neurosurgery, that kind of thing. A fellow is somebody who, after they finish a residency, then says, you know what, OBGYN is great, but I want to super subspecialize and I'm going to do an additional fellowship. So this would be somebody like me who does an additional three years in care of high-risk pregnancy or mm-hmm. somebody who does an additional three years in neurogynecology and care of incontinence and pro- pelvic organ prolapse. So it's somebody who specializes beyond the resident level. Okay, so it's like a second specialization. Yes. So so after medical school, I did four years of OBGYN, and then I did three years of just high-risk training. So a total of seven years of additional training after medical school. Lots and lots of years. I was in school forever. Yes. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so great to explain it because when you're giving birth in a hospital, you especially if it's a teaching hospital, you'll get, you'll get, you know, medical students come in, you'll get residents come in, you'll get fellows come in, and they all kind of have the same coats. They do. We all, we try to have different lengths coats. So medical students are supposed to have short coats and attendings and full physicians are supposed to have longer coats. And, you know, that hierarchy has disappeared over the years, just like, you know, all those things you wear at cap and gown ceremonies all mean something, but I don't really know what they mean anymore, but they all have meanings. So. Wow. See, I never knew this thing about the length of the coat. Yeah. Yeah. So the short coats are supposed to be medical students and long coats are supposed to be residents and then really long coats are attending. But, you know, if there are also hospitals that color code. Uh-huh. So like at Northwestern, like I think residents are gray and attendings are blue coats. Okay. I'll have to keep an eye out for that coat yeah. length thing next time. Interesting. Yes, coat length. If it goes beyond, if it goes beyond kind of your fingertips, then it's an attending coat. Mm, very cool. Nobody does floor length, I'm sure. That's like your whole life in school. I mean, I guess, it, you know, they, they, the coats kind of come like, you know, one size to mm-hmm. some degree. So I guess it depends on your height. Some people are closer to floor length than others. But. <laughs> okay. So thank you. And I asked you on the show because you're pretty much the expert on all of those pregnancy boogeymen that live in the back of an expecting woman's mind, you know, constantly bringing yeah. up the what if baby has this or what if this ends up happening? But for you, this is your day to day. And I wanted to try and lessen those worries in the best way that I know how, which is through facts. So 
Let's start at the top. Absolutely. So the number one thing to know is that most pregnant women don't need me, right? So like most pregnant women are going to do great. They're never going to see me or they're going to see me one time and I'm going to say, all is well, or you have this little thing that needs follow up, but no worries, you know, have a great pregnancy. Or you're going to see me and I'm going to say, let's plan for your pregnancy. Let's talk about the risks. But again, you may not ever need me. So in reality, most women will never need me. But the women who do need me really need me. Exactly. And we're so happy you're there for those not common cases. So starting with the definition, what makes a pregnancy high risk? Why would somebody go see you? So that is, so this is one of the really hard things about our specialty is high risk is so much in the eye of the beholder. So if your routine obstetrical provider is a midwife or a family practitioner, their threshold for where high risk may be, may be different than somebody who is an MD in OBGYN. And maybe that may even be different between two OBGYN MDs. Somebody who practices at a community hospital without a ton of support services may not be willing to even take anything that's on the border versus somebody who's at a tertiary care center with lots of support services, even though they're a general OBGYN, may have a little more risk tolerance than um, somebody else. So one of the really hard things we have when patients come to see me is, do they need to see me? And a lot of times the answer is no. Sometimes patients just feel more comfortable because they've had a complication in their previous pregnancy. And that's actually, you know, one portion of my practice is patients who had something happen last time Mm -hmm. and now everything's great and the pregnancy is going fabulous. And I see them and I say, oh, it's well, it's so exciting. And then, you know, nothing happens and then the baby comes out and it's great. But because they did have something happen, they just want to be sure that somebody's watching that little bit more carefully. There are some patients that are truly obviously high risk that are probably only going to be cared for by an MFM or maternal fetal medicine physician. And those are going to be your patients with a patient with a solid organ transplant. So a patient who's had a heart or a kidney transplant probably is only an MFM that's going to be comfortable caring for them in pregnancy. Patients who have really difficult to manage diabetes or hypertension, patients who are very, very obese where special equipment or special considerations are required are probably going to end up with a maternal fetal medicine physician. Patients with autoimmune diseases like lupus or Sjogren's or um, anticardiolipin antibody syndrome where things are more complicated may see a general OBGYN with us in consultation or may just see us. And then patients who have functional heart disease are probably going to end up with us or functional neuromuscular disease, functional lung disease. So examples of that would be patients who have artificial heart valves or have a valve that hasn't been replaced but is leaking or giving abnormal heart rhythms. That might be a patient that a general practitioner would be uncomfortable following in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking even not just a pregnancy that's labeled as high risk for you know, things like advanced maternal age or underlying conditions that are diabetes or high blood pressure. We're talking bigger than that high risk with like capital HR. Yeah, with a big capital HR with the the, the patients where even I'm a little uncomfortable. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, advanced maternal age certainly 
might get you a visit to my office and I might be happy to say, hey, how are you? Let's talk about your risks with your age. But most patients who are labeled with that scary advanced maternal age, which we should talk about a little bit, actually don't need me. They really, you know, most patients with advanced maternal age really are going to be fine and are going to do great. And that advanced maternal age wasn't picked like I tell women all the time. It's not like when you hit 35, like the eggs expire. You know, it's it's not like, oh, no, that's it. You know, your uterus blows up and you can't have any more babies. I mean, 35 was picked simply because that's the age where the risk of, at the time, invasive procedures like amniocentesis the risk of losing a pregnancy from one of those procedures and the risk of having a baby with a genetic condition like Down syndrome crossed. So simply that age was picked because it was the number where the risk of having a baby with Down syndrome is one in 300. The risk of the procedure is one in 300. So if you're younger than this, then the procedure is more risky than the outcome. And if you're older than this, then the procedure is less risky than the outcome. And that was the only reason that number was picked. But now we have so many different tests that are available mm-hmm. to test for things like Down syndrome and Turner syndrome and trisomy 18 and trisomy 13 that now we don't necessarily need to do those invasive tests like we used to to give a mom a sense of whether she's at higher or lower risk than women of her age, of her age group. And so... The advanced maternal age, although women as they age have a slightly higher risk of high blood pressure during pregnancy, of gestational diabetes during pregnancy, of developing complications during the pregnancy and needing early delivery and, you know, may have some of those challenges. In general, most women over 35 are going to do great with a pregnancy and have no issues at all. And so the label has remained, even though 35 is kind of an arbitrary number. Okay. Yeah. And because we see more and more every day, more moms going into 35, 40, 45 having kids. Absolutely. And that's the fastest growing demographic of patients who are having pregnancies. As the teen pregnancy rate has dropped, the pregnancy rate in that later life has has risen. And um, for no other reason than women are delaying childbearing and getting their careers set and, and, you know, choosing other time frames to have their children. And also all the advances in fertility that allow for these pregnancies to even happen. Sure. And in some cases, there are pros and cons to those kind of treatments. And most women, again, most women over 35 will get pregnant without any help at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, fertility has ups and downs and upsides and downsides. And, um, but it is widely, acceptable now and widely available and and much more facile than it has been ever before. And so certainly that has extended the options for reproduction beyond where other other times in our history have, have we been able to do that. And I know this is not necessarily specifically to the topic that we're talking about, but I'm curious, I, what are those upsides and downsides of fertility that you see? Well, so, I mean, the biggest downside of fertility is, to some degree, we live in a society where the burden of fault for fertility and for complications in the pregnancy and for children who who have challenges 
that falls to women. Women very much feel that it, you know, it's my fault. I'm, I'm, I feel very guilty that these things happen to me. And so needing fertility can, can be a very stressful event for mm-hmm. a couple. To, to have to be in that place. And so I think that's, that's one thing we have to you know, think about when, when those services are needed. Additionally, I think, you know, families with multiple children are great, but from my perspective, the complication rate really starts to rise the more children you try to have at a time. And so certainly you want two kids, great. How about one at a time, one right after the other, instead of twins or triplets or quadruplets or quintuplets. And when we start to get into, especially those very high order multiples, the complication rates really start to rise both for mom and baby. And so, you know, avoiding those is obviously something that's ideal, especially if you're entering pregnancy in a little bit higher risk state. And so fertility does carry a slightly increased risk of having a multiple gestation. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that risk be lowered? It's my understanding that as fertility has been advancing and it's gotten more precise, just like the, you were saying, the tests now we have less invasive tests to determine the risks. I, it is my understanding that also the risk of having multiple multiples when you do fertility has also decreased. Do you see it that? Has. Yeah. And so, yeah, the fertility groups and the fertility societies have have very much taken a very active role in trying to curb back especially higher order multiples. I mean, you're always going to have an increased twin risk with any kind of fertility technology. That's just going to be hard to avoid. But especially, you know, quadruplets, quintuplets, you know, these things should should really, these should be the exception, not the rule. And they've really worked hard to try to avoid those kind of situations because of the neonatal um, challenges mm-hmm. for the babies. You touch upon a little bit on the chronic health problems that might get you into that high risk category. What about unexpected? Sure, and I go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say what I didn't mention is the other group of patients that end up in my practice a lot are moms who are completely and totally healthy, and mm-hmm. babies who have a major challenge. So babies who have a prenatally diagnosed cardiac anomaly or twins where they're having specific kinds of complications where they're not sharing the placenta nicely and one baby is very large and one baby is very small and the fluids are abnormal between them, things like that. So when the baby is having a complication that now needs management in a high-risk pregnancy clinic because it's going to require more monitoring, more assessment of when is the right time for this baby to be born, where is the right place for this baby to be born, and who needs to be there and ready for this baby to have the best possible chances after delivery. So that's the other group of patients that I kind of take care of. And at that point, what are you analyzing when you're thinking, when is this, when's the time to be able to thrive and survive and be healthy? What goes through your mind when you're looking at each specific case? So it's, it's a little combination of things. You know, one of the things we have to think about is health of the mother. So if mom is having a complication like something like preeclampsia or high blood pressure of pregnancy with protein in her urine, does the amount of disease that she has, is it such that if we don't get baby out, mom is going to get sicker and sicker and sicker? Well, then baby needs to come out. So we can fix mom. If mom is doing okay, then, you know, obviously our goal is to get baby as close to full term as possible. You know, 39 plus weeks is our goal. If it's trying to balance those two things, how much more can I let baby 
cook to get a little bit further, not quite so creamy, while watching mom to make sure she doesn't get any sicker and, and trying to kind of get to that point where I feel like, okay, the, this is the best I can do for baby before mom's going to really take a turn. And so that's often the balance that we're playing. Sometimes we're taking the balance of if mom is perfectly well and happy, you know, it's, we're trying to go to full term. Sometimes babies aren't growing well inside. And so we have to kind of look at the whole curve of how is baby growing? How is baby's testing doing? Is baby showing up signs that they're unhappy or their placenta is not working and they're not going to be able to continue to grow and develop and be, get good oxygen. And we have to kind of say, okay, would this baby be better out than in, you know, where we can feed it and oxygenate it outside. And when you have a really medically complex baby where there's a heart defect or something that needs surgery after delivery, then you're balancing how big is the baby? Is it big enough for surgery? Is it mature enough for surgery based and then balancing that against how well is it doing inside? How well is it growing inside? And then if you add in how sick is mom, is she doing okay? And then you're trying to balance those three things. And so it's, um, you can imagine that we, we have a lot of heated discussions, even among the, you know, the six of us here about, you know, should we do it now? Should we do it next week? Should we try to push it another week? You know, that kind of thing. So. Oh, and it's such a tricky situation because you have the facts, but there's no certainty one way or the other of what's going to happen in a week. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just like a lot of things in parenthood. You know, you can't, you can't split your kid in half and be like, all right, this half of my kid is going to take piano lessons and this half of my kid is going to take guitar lessons and we're going to see which one they're better at. Mm -hmm. Right. We, we can't, you can't have it both ways. So it's that grass is always greener. If we take out a baby and it does terrible, we're going to say, gosh, I really should have let it be inside or maybe I should have let it you know, be there a little longer. or Maybe it would have done better if I'd given another week. And if we take out baby and it, does also when we say, oh, maybe it's too well. Maybe I should have let it cook another week. You know what I mean? So we have this this balance. And if we don't deliver a baby and then the next week it looks even worse, we say, oh, gosh, maybe I should have delivered it last week. So you just got to make your decisions and go with them. And that's it's so much um, uncertainty. I think that is something that a lot of my moms really struggle with is it's going to be a different kind of pregnancy. The goal is a healthy mom and the goal is a healthy baby we have to reorient your plan of my baby's going to go immediately skin to skin and have delayed cord clamping and I'm going to breastfeed in, the, in delivery and I'm, you know, she's never going to leave my side to, you know, your baby has a major bowel issue and has got to immediately go into a bag to keep it warm and go directly to the NICU and then right to surgery and won't be able to eat for four or five days. And you can't touch it because it's going to be high risk of infection. I mean, we just have to reorient what's best now versus what's best in the long term, And that can be a big adjustment when you have one vision in your mind for how your pregnancy is going to go. Diaper rash. It can be a truly uncomfortable experience for a baby. And so I find that one of the biggest conundrums when diapering is figuring out what diaper cream to use. So many options are thick and goopy, making them hard to apply and hard to wipe off. But I can personally say that this is not the case for Dr. Mom Butt Balm. 
Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant that is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, designed as a breathable formula to help maintain an optimal skin barrier while allowing the healing to occur. This butt balm was developed by a mom who is also a doctor, hence the name Dr. Mom Butt Balm, when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash and she wasn't about to settle. So she created Dr. Mom Butt Balm to go on smooth and be easy to remove while also being gentle on your baby's delicate skin. With Dr. Mom Butt Balm, you can say goodbye to excessive wiping to clean your little one's already chafed skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is so soft and goes on so smooth that you'll only need a small amount instead of having to layer on a thick goop. Plus, it has a lovely minty scent. Learn more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com. That's drmombuttbalm.com or look for it at Amazon.com. With Mother's Day coming up fast, are you looking to get your mom, grandma, or mother figure a gift that they'll actually love? You know, something that is treasured instead of dying out or collecting dust? If so, you need to know about mylifeinabook.com, which is a service that helps turn their life stories into a beautiful book that can be passed down. How amazing is that? And the process couldn't be easier. Basically, if they can use email, they can create their book. Every week, My Life in a Book will send them an email with a prompt question to get them started. And if they don't like the question, they can easily edit it or change it. We gave a My Life in a Book to a family member that always wants to document all family get-togethers through images. And let me tell you, the process of sending the gift was super simple, even letting us choose the date we wanted the gift to be sent. I'm so looking forward to discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, and the challenges she has overcome. And since My Life in a Book lets you add an image with each answer, she can now share the story that goes along with her many photos. Another great thing is that the answers can be edited at any time before the book is printed, in case she wants to add anything else. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 10% off today. How do you how do you help orient that? How do you help people get through that? You know, reframing and and it's a big transition to try to have all your dreams switch so radically. It is, and you know, I think everybody experiences this a little bit. I mean, I know when my babies were born, I had this moment where you have you know they announced the baby, oh, it's a girl, it's a boy, you know, it's whatever, and you have that moment where you're like, oh my god, I'm so glad I have this healthy baby girl. But then you have that little moment in your mind where you're like, oh, but I pictured what it would be like when my son played baseball or when my son, when I watched my son down the aisle or when I, you know, saw my son play ice hockey or when I saw my son read for the first time. Like you have like a little picture in your mind that you have to kind of let go of. You have to say, I can't really love and appreciate the baby that I got until I can kind of let go of the image and the the story that I've told myself about the baby that I was going to have. And so part of it is almost a grieving to Mm -hmm. kind of let yourself be sad for what 
you're not going to have. You're not going to get to have, you know, the delivery with the, in the forest with the, you know, the tub of water. You're just not going to get to have that. Like we have to, we have to take a step back and say, okay, I'm not going to get to have what my first vision was. Which pieces of that vision can I still have? And so, you know, for some times that's thinking about what's best in the moment, but sometimes it's like, okay, so what was really important to me about that delivery that I had pictured in my mind was that my husband was going to announce the gender. And now I have to have a C-section and my baby has to go right to the NICU and I don't get to, he doesn't get to cut the cord. And I don't get to have that, but I really still want him to announce the gender. Can we still do that? And finding little pieces that say, let's take what was really important about this and drill down to some pieces that we can give you some normality. We can give you some, some pieces of, of what you wanted, even though you're going to have to shift your expectations on other things. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to breastfeed and I really wanted to have my baby skin to skin. Okay. That's not going to be possible because your baby is 28 weeks, but you can still breastfeed. You know, we're going to work with lactation to help you do that. Like it's going to be a wonderful thing that you're going to do for your child. Let's, let's still do that goal, but we're going to have to reorient how that's going to happen. And even even with births that are not high risk, we see that happen because circumstances are, like, you know, I see it as a doula, I see it happen often where people had an idea of what was going to happen and circumstances change and you do go through that morning. And I tell them, you can't go down, go down the what if path. What if I had done this? What if I had what? Because you don't know what if. There's, that's just going to. You absolutely cannot. Oh, you no. absolutely cannot. You, you, you'll make yourself crazy. And, you, and you'll do it forever as a parent. Like, what if I had only walked upstairs one second earlier and my daughter had not pushed my son off the top bunk? What if? I mean, you'll do it forever. You, you just can't. You no. just can't go down that as a parent because you'll lose your mind. And it's also about that mindfulness a little bit of accepting the experience that's actually happening instead of trying to fight for the one you had envisioned. Yeah, Which and is that is a saying. hard thing. It yes. is so hard. And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to write a birth plan. And we have a high-risk birth plan, actually. We have a couple of them. We have one that's specific to um, the high-risk labor and delivery unit that's like, let's talk about some of the monitoring that, you know, you plan to have no monitoring. Well, your baby has a major cardiac defect with only one ventricle. That's not an option anymore. We got to do cardiac monitoring, you know, and, and that's just different. It's just different than a low risk pregnancy. So let's figure out, so what was it that you wanted about no monitoring? Well, I didn't want to be on my back and I didn't want to be stuck in bed. Absolutely. Let's, you don't have to do any of those things. You can sit on the ball. You can be in the chair. You can stand up. You can walk around. You just have to be within this 10 feet of cord. Oh, I have to be in bed, you know, reorienting that it's not the monitoring that's you know, what it was it that was important to you about no monitoring. And I love hearing you say this because that's that is narrowing it down what it's all about. It's how can you make this experience better for the mom, no, regardless of what is happening and how can you humanize it as much as possible and not have it be, you know, because it is if you're high risk, it is a medical event to an extent, but it. But it's also this amazing life event of your baby being born. And I'm going to, would you be able to, would you be willing to share those high-risk birth plans? Um, sure. Um, you know, some of them are a little bit in evolution, but we can, you know, share where we are with them. Um, you know, and we, oh, we redo them periodically mm-hmm. and say, oh, this doesn't really work. 
you know, and one of the ones that we use, it's actually was put together by um, a local organization called Compassion Net that we use as well in our clinic, even if women aren't using that service, is a birth plan for the baby that's not expected to survive. So we mm-hmm. have a whole birth process related to that that we work through with parents. And what are your goals? And what is your plan? And, and you know, how can we take what is both the best and the worst day of your life and make it all that you hope, even though it can't be what you really want? And so that is always a little bit of a challenge too, to, to start that conversation. And that's, you know, to some degree, the best and the worst part of my job, but it's also nice when I get to have that continuity with a patient or even just in the practice with the six of us to kind of help people work through, this isn't the plan you had, but let's get to a plan that works for you and your family. Mm-hmm. Having that appreciation for what they are going through is key in their healing and moving on and becoming fabulous parents. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's so hard because I tell my mom all the time, everybody's a parent, right? Even if your baby's not with you. Mm-hmm. So it's, that can be one of the challenges we have too, because some of our moms don't take home babies and yeah. um, to try to help them understand that parenthood is a state you pass into, not a state that defines you. And your children are always with you, whether they are with you or not. Right. And so it's, it's just such a, it's such a challenging thing to, to, um, to kind of be in that moment with people. But it, it's also just amazing. I mean, what other job is there where I get to do this? And it is very there's there's more awareness about this now. So fortunately, there's more services that address these situations, like the Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep organization, which will come in and take pictures. Um, mm-hmm. And have you, it, you might think, if you've never had a baby or haven't considered it, you might think like that's a macabre situation. But it, it goes by in such a blur that later you'll want those pictures and you'll appreciate that somebody did that or had, you know, there's so many services that I know that's a completely different topic. So I don't want to go too far down the road, but it is something that you don't just have to like figure out how to do it on your own. Absolutely. And, you know, even if you don't have the advantage of planning, you know, there are the labor and delivery nurses, I mean, at least here are amazing. And we have multiple of them that are certified pregnancy law specialists and grief counselors and do all of that. And so it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful service. And it's really handled very, I don't know what the word is. I want tastefully, sensitively. It's, mm-hmm. it's really beautiful. It's, it's really, it's really nicely done. And it of course is an option. And, and so we do get a portion of our practice that is patients who are choosing a palliative approach to an infant with a life limiting condition. And that, that's a, you know, a unique piece of maternal fetal medicine and one that I think people don't realize we always do but those pregnancies also come with considerable maternal risk often when baby has a major major problem like that it puts mother at increased risk for some very unique complications to those pregnancies and so often a high-risk physician will be involved to make sure that we don't harm mom in the honoring of her goals for the pregnancy. 
So now I want to bring it back to the those sort of unexpected circumstances that might happen during pregnancy that can cause it to go into a high risk. So, and and I'm going to go to the very mundane things that people might be okay. worrying about. Like, let's go to an easy one. Okay. Yes. Let's go from where we were very deep on the one end and bring it back to like, say, experiencing premature labor. What sure. may that look like? And what are the next steps you consider? And so that is a great one. So, you know, oftentimes that's you know, a real, real quick reorientation of your goals. You know, here I was planning to deliver at my low risk community hospital with my midwife and all of a sudden my water breaks and I'm in labor at 32 weeks. What is happening? Right. And you really have, you'll get transferred over to the high risk service and all of a sudden you're, you have to, to rethink everything. So that is, you know, a, a patient where it's much more about baby's needs to be near the NICU and the high risk NICU physicians than it is about complications for mom. But there certainly can be challenges for mom too in an early delivery. Um, so that would be somebody that we would, you know, sit down and talk about, okay, let's try to figure out if we sh can stop your labor. Should we stop your labor? Are there signs of complications that baby is better out than in? Things like infection or complications with the placenta, like abruption, that placenta starting to separate early. Um, or can we try to temporize and get baby a few more weeks inside? Can we give baby medications to be more ready to be on the outside? Things like beta-methadone is a, a steroid shot that we'll use to kind of make baby's lungs and heart and brain and bowel be more ready to be outside than inside um, does not turn a 32-week baby into a full-term baby, but, you know, can help kind of push baby down the road towards being a little more ready for an air world versus a water world. And then, you know, can we give antibiotics or things to, to kind of prevent infection for baby as they're delivering early and they're small and they're, they're, you know, premature. So that's, you know, kind of the things that we start to think about when somebody presents with a new challenge in pregnancy. What about another scenario? What about if bleeding, mom starts experiencing some bleeding in the pregnancy? When should she be concerned? When is it? Yeah. When should she be concerned? So a lot of women will have early bleeding in pregnancy, especially what we call implantation bleeding. So kind of in that four to six week range, spotting, a little brown bleeding here or there. And that's very, very common and probably nothing to worry about. If it's heavy, if you're feeling pads, then that's something to worry about and you should give your doctor a call. Women who have negative blood, so RH negative, so they're O negative, B negative, AB negative, something negative, then if they have bleeding in pregnancy, they need a special shot called Rogam to prevent creation of an antibody, essentially like a, an allergy kind of thing against baby's blood where they, it won't hurt the current pregnancy, but it could hurt future pregnancies. So anytime they have bleeding, they need this, this special injection to prevent that from happening. And then it kind of depends on where you are in the pregnancy. So a little spotting here or there in that first part of pregnancy, first trimester, probably not a big deal as long as ultrasound looks good and baby is continuing to grow well. Heavy bleeding at any point in pregnancy can be very concerning and should be checked out especially more than a pad an hour, we say that really should bring you in. Additionally, bleeding during labor, so a small amount of bleeding when you're full term and laboring, especially with your first pregnancy, is normal. As that cervix goes from, you know, 
nice and closed to 10 centimeters, it's going to stretch and it's going to bleed a little bit. And that's also a normal thing. So it a little bit depends on where you are and how much it is, whether we're going to be concerned. Most of the time when you're bleeding, you're going to come in, you're going to do an exam, look inside, see, and if everything looks okay and the bleeding has stopped, we'll probably at some point get an ultrasound to make sure there's nothing collecting inside, um, especially if you're in your second or third part of pregnancy. And most of the time, it'll be okay and we'll just watch it. There are a couple of conditions, though, that do lead to very heavy bleeding and can be very scary and certainly would probably land you in my office. One of them is called a placenta previa, which is where the placenta essentially goes over the cervix, over the door on the way out. So in that circumstance, the baby can't get through the cervix and anytime the cervix starts to open or starts to thin out, the placenta itself will start to bleed. And so you can imagine that that can be life-threatening for mom and baby. And the other one is called placental abruption. And that's when the placenta pulls away from the wall of the uterus early. And that obviously, that is the organ that is keeping the baby alive inside. Mm -hmm. And so if enough of it pulls away, the baby can get into trouble. So if we think that's happening, baby can need additional monitoring to make sure it's okay. Now, the vast majority of abruptions and previas will not have, the abruptions will stabilize and the previas will not have bleeding and will be fine. And everybody will be great. The previous will need C-sections because, you know, someone's blocking up the door and mm-hmm. have to come out a different way. But, um, you know, so even if you have these conditions, does not necessarily mean you're not going to be able to have a healthy baby. It just means that you may need more watching, more monitoring. You know, you may go from having the pregnancy where you go in once a month and everything's great to having a lot more ultrasounds, a lot more watching, maybe even be in the hospital for a period of time. And that's reassuring to hear because, you know, things like, especially a placenta abruption with that big word of abruption, it sounds horrible. But the fact that that it could be something that just needs more watching and stabilizes and then you go on to have your regular pregnancy, that's reassuring. And I'm not saying that everybody with an abruption should say, oh, well, I've heard it on a podcast, so there's nothing to worry about. (laughs) But of course, everyone listening knows, right, like a podcast does not take the place of advice from your doctor. Um, It's the, the fact remains that there are women who will have abruptions, who will have complications, who will deliver early, who will have very, very scary events happen. Babies can die, moms can get very sick, you know, have a lot of blood loss. So there's nothing we want to blow off. But oh no, absolutely. Just because you have one doesn't mean you necessarily are are doomed to a lifetime of complications and everything is going to go terrible. So take a, a deep breath and take a moment and sometimes these will stabilize and, and you can do great. Yeah, exactly. And that's and we, the first thing we said is it needs to be monitored. You need to be not just absolutely. stay home and just go on with life as is. No. But yeah, that it doesn't mean that it's doom and gloom automatically. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Then the other scenario I wanted to look at into was the high blood pressure, because that's another thing that's that it's paid lots of attention to. Absolutely. And high blood pressure, there's no question, is a major complication in pregnancy and one that a lot of people have heard about. Right. But again, the majority of people who have high blood pressure in pregnancy. So this is not people who have high blood pressure before pregnancy. This is I have a normal blood pressure. All of a sudden in pregnancy, my blood pressure rises. I start to have protein in my urine. Develop something called preeclampsia. 
The majority of that's going to happen at term. And although it does sometimes require early delivery and requires evaluation, it does not necessarily mean that you are going to deliver early or that your baby is going to have complications. So it does need looking into and it does need more watching labs. You may end up going for blood work. You may end up going for stress testing on the baby, serial ultrasound exams on the baby, bed rest or watching your blood pressure really carefully. But again, you know, would be something that your doctor will try to balance. When is the right time for a baby to come out? Because it's enough cooks that it can do well before mom gets really sick. So preeclampsia is, so gestational hypertension is high blood pressure in pregnancy. And then there's preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure with protein in your urine. And then there's eclampsia, which is high blood pressure, proteinuria, and seizures. Mm -hmm. And that would require delivery. Right. But the preeclampsia, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Although, I mean, if you are 39 weeks with preeclampsia, odds are you're getting delivered. Right. If you're 22 weeks with preeclampsia, well, or 24 weeks, you know, it's going to depend on how sick you are, how, um, what your laboratory testing looks like, how the baby's doing before we're going to deliver you or not deliver you. Perfect. I want to keep talking with you for hours, <laughs> but it's time to end it. It's time to say goodbye. Oh, no. <laughs> I want to thank you so much, Lorelai, for being on the show and sharing your knowledge. Absolutely. Fabulous. Thanks so much. If the listeners wanted to follow what you're doing, how can they do that? I do have a profile on the U of R website, and you can kind of see you know, what I've published and what I'm working on there. If they want to read more about high-risk pregnancy and you know some of my answers to pregnancy-related questions, I did a Reddit on Ask Me Anything on Pregnancy, and they're welcome to go and read you know, the 70,000 questions that I think they had me answer. Cool. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't quite that many, but it felt like it. <laughs> Very good. And we'll link to that Reddit on the show notes. Okay. It's under the science Reddit, you know, Reddit science. Okay. Thanks so much, Lorelai. You're very welcome. This was fun. That was maternal fetal medicine physician and associate professor, Dr. Lorelai Thornburg. And you can connect with us at Birthful Podcast on Instagram. In fact, if you're not driving, one of the things we love is when you take a screenshot of this episode as you're listening and then post it to Instagram, to your stories, sharing your biggest takeaway from the episode. Maybe for this one, it was learning how the designation of advanced maternal age was arbitrarily created and how you and your baby's health matter more than your age. Make sure to tag at Birthful Podcast so we can see it and amplify it. You can find the in-depth show notes and transcript of this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about my birth and postpartum preparation classes and download your free postpartum preparation plan. Also, if you find that this podcast is an invaluable resource for you, the best way to support us is by taking one of my perinatal classes or doula workshops or trying out any of the wonderful products made by our sponsors. This is what allows us to continue doing this work. Birthful is created and produced by me, Adriana Lozada, with production assistance from Asia Plotty. Thank you, as always, for sharing and listening to Birthful. Be sure to follow us on GoodPod, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and everywhere you listen. And then come back for more ways to inform your intuition.
Hey, Mighty One. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know. 